I personally don't think I'm going to get tired of that one anytime soon. It's a great song. I know I comment every time we sing it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him for His help uh, as we now consider the fact that He saves the ungodly. That's us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do come to you now as ungodly sinners in need of your grace. We know that for many in the room, we have been redeemed by your Son. We know that we are covered in his righteousness. And we pray that by your Spirit, you would come now and press these wonderful truths on us this morning. We pray that we would see ourselves rightly. We pray that we would understand who it is that saves. We pray that we would understand how we are saved and have been saved and are being saved. We pray that Jesus would be made much of. And we pray that as we hear about your wonderful plan of redemption through him, that we would be changed. That our hearts would be stirred. And we pray that we would be different, really different, as a result of sitting under your word. And so we pray that you would come and do that supernatural work now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Christianity, and when I say Christianity right, right now, I'm talking about the biblical kind. The biblical kind of Christianity is utterly unique. It is different than any other religion. In the world. And many of you are probably sitting there like, yeah, no kidding, brother. I'm, I'm with you. I agree with you uh, that Christianity is unique. It's not like other religions. But my point, and even in the purpose in bringing that up this morning, is to stress the thing that separates biblical Christianity from even other theistic religions. Theistic religions meaning religions that believe in God. In particular, even monotheistic religions, religions that believe in one God. So by that, we're talking about the difference between biblical Christianity and Islam, or biblical Christianity and Judaism. And then even other forms of what might be broadly called Christianity, like Roman Catholicism. What is it about biblical Christianity that is unique? The thing that makes it unique is that Christianity teaches that God justifies the ungodly. He justifies ungodly people. So this is not me standing up here or any preacher standing up here expounding this book and saying, or expounding some other holy book and saying, look, live by the five pillars. Pray your prayers, keep your fasts, give your alms, make your pilgrimages, and maybe Allah will be merciful. This is not that. This is not... Keep the law, and then God will be merciful to you. This is not cooperate with God through your application of the seven sacraments. And then, hopefully, you won't spend that long in purgatory. Because you will have cooperated with the grace of God enough. You will have made enough penance for your sins that maybe you won't have to wait too long. You won't have to be purified and purged too long before entering heaven. This is not that. Biblical Christianity is none of those things. This is God, because of His grace and love, through the accomplishments of His Son, declaring sinners righteous. That's biblical Christianity. And then, as has already been alluded to, He continues to work by His grace to change us, to change His people, to grow us in holiness by His Spirit. And then one day, He promises that we will be pure and blameless. And that we will be with Him forever. That's the real thing. That's biblical Christianity. This must ever be before the church of our Lord Jesus. Always. And it's before us in our text today. This fundamental, central truth that God justifies ungodly people. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do... Open them up to Galatians chapter 3. Uh, we've been spending a number of weeks now in Paul's letter to the Galatians. We will be looking this morning primarily at chapter 3 verses 4 through 9. But as you are taking the time to flip there, I will begin reading in chapter 3 and verse 1. Just because it will encapsulate this particular portion of Paul's argument. So now look with me to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1. And listen as I read the word of God. 
O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. My plan for us today is essentially a three-point, a three-part sermon. Uh, I'll go ahead and give those to you now for the note-takers in the room just to give you the plan. Point one, part one, is this. The Galatian Christians, this is the point of Paul, the Galatian Christians are justified by faith, just like Abraham was justified by faith. Point two will just be a consideration of Abraham's life because God, through the Apostle Paul, points us to Abraham. We're going to consider him. We're going to think about how we're like him, honestly. And then finally, the third piece will be just a couple of closing meditations that I think flow out of this text for us. So let's go ahead and begin our time together. Part one, point one, the Galatian Christians are justified by faith. Just like Abraham was justified by faith. And remember again, whenever you see that word justified in your Bible, you can also substitute rightly, counted righteous. God counts righteous. The Galatian Christians by faith, just like he counted Abraham righteous by faith. So this is a continuation in verses 4 through 9 of the argument that Paul began in chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul has asked the two rhetorical questions then in verse 2 and 3. In verse 2 he asked, did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer, as we considered a few weeks ago, is obvious. It's assumed. Of course, it's the latter. We receive the Holy Spirit not by works, but by hearing with faith. And then he asks asks in verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you finishing By the flesh, obviously not. Again, the answer is assumed. So now in verse 4, we see another question. Did you suffer so many things in vain? Or did you experience so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So Paul has already been appealing to the Galatian Christians in their experience of conversion, what happened to them, how they received the Spirit. But he now presses further into their experience, it seems, with respect to what they have endured, what they have suffered, what they have experienced since even becoming believers. Have you experienced so many things from your conversion up to now? Have you suffered so many things from your conversion up to now? Have you done that? Have you experienced those things in vain? And what he is saying is that if you persist in insisting on the place of works, if you press on and keep insisting on the place of circumcision then you, in one sense, are demonstrating that you have suffered these things in vain. You have experienced these things in vain because you are jettisoning the gospel. You are abandoning the gospel if you keep pressing the necessity of works and the necessity of circumcision in particular. And then he continues on in verses 5 and 6. He asks yet another question. You have to love how he does this. He asks these searching, pressing, penetrating questions. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, namely God, does he do that? Does he supply the Spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law? Or does he do that by hearing with faith? And then he says, just as Abraham believed God, he's quoting Genesis 15 here, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the answer again is assumed. It's obvious. It's obviously the latter. It is by hearing with faith just like it was with Abraham. 
And so we see as he continues on to press, after he's, I think, made it quite clear what he's getting at with those couple of additional questions, he makes a statement in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham, sons and daughters, children of Abraham. And to be a son or a daughter of Abraham in this case is not a biological reality that he's pointing to. It is in this conversation about justification, to be a child of Abraham has a spiritual significance. He's talking about being a son or a daughter of Abraham spiritually. To be a spiritual child of Abraham is to be a child of promise. To think back in terms of those old covenant categories and new covenant categories. A child of promise versus a child of the flesh. So to be a biological child, because this matters, because in this context, even though he's writing to Gentiles, there is an influence from Jewish believers that we've already seen in how Peter was influenced by them in Galatians 2. And they would have been thinking in the day still that to be biologically a child of Abraham was massively significant. Massively significant in terms of your salvation, in terms of your standing before God. To be a biological child of Abraham is a big deal. But what we have to consider in light of even the arguments that Paul is making is that to be a biological child of Abraham, to be his physical seed, his physical offspring, doesn't really do anyone any good at all when it comes to justification. Abraham, after all, was nothing but a man conceived and born in sin, a man who sinned in his life and therefore stood condemned apart from faith. If there is no faith in terms of Abraham believing God, he stands condemned in his flesh. And so to be a child of his according to the flesh does you no good in terms of your standing before the Lord. Faith, Paul makes quite clear. Now then, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Faith is the way that a person is a child of God spiritually. The only way that matters. It's not by keeping the law that you become a child of Abraham spiritually. It's not by being circumcised even. Perhaps even more provocatively, we're going to think about that. It's not even by being circumcised that you would become a child of Abraham. And as you put your eyes now on verse 8, we see how Paul says the scripture, inspired of course by God's spirit, foresaw that God would justify, again, count righteous the Gentiles by faith. And so, the scripture, Paul says, Moses, right, the scripture, preached the gospel millennia beforehand to Abraham. So this is why he's talking about the scripture that Moses would write long after Abraham was alive. So it's the Holy Spirit, right, who inspires scripture, who preached to Abraham thousands of years, a couple thousand years, easily before we're talking about this stuff here in Galatians. He says to Abraham, in you shall all nations be blessed. Paul is citing Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. And this is one of those really cool times when New Testament writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, do some inspired Old Testament interpretation. You have to love this. Where the Bible interprets the Bible for you. So for us to look at Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, and say, when God makes that promise to Abraham, in you will all the nations be blessed. Will all the families of the earth be blessed? To say that that's a gospel reality, it's not my idea. It's not your idea. It was God's intent in saying that to Abraham. In you all the nations will be blessed was a proclamation by the Holy Spirit of the gospel. The fact that God has always intended to save for himself, to make for himself a people from every tribe and language and nation. So when God promised Abraham that all the nations would be blessed in him, God was talking about nothing less than the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, who would come. Abraham, of course, was the father of the people of Israel. Abraham, Father Abraham, we'll think about that in just a minute, he had many sons, right? And many sons had Father Abraham. But namely, Abraham had a son named Isaac who then had a son named Jacob, who then had 12 sons, who became the tribes of Israel, and so on, and so on. And of course, out of the ethnic biological line of Abraham, the Messiah, the Savior, would come. So in that sense, the Messiah, the gospel, would 
through Abraham, through his offspring, the gospel would come. Jesus, the Savior, would come. But what's awesome to me as I reflected on this text this week is that God promised Abraham that he would bless all nations through him by saving them the way that he would save him. And that's by faith. Abraham, I'm saving you by faith because you have believed me and I am counting that to you as righteousness. And I'm going to save the nations through your offspring the exact same way. By faith. It's remarkable. So then those who are of faith, verse 9, you can see this. Again, just to, you can feel Paul kind of almost putting a nice little bow on this section of his argument. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Again, it is not by works that a person is blessed along with Abraham. It is not by works that a person becomes a son or a daughter. Of Abraham, it is by faith, it is of faith, it is through faith that those things happen. And let's keep in mind why all of this would have been very important to Paul's hearers, to the people that would have been reading this letter or hearing it read in their presence. Remember, they were being taught that alongside faith in Jesus, it was necessary to keep the law in order to be justified. They were being taught that alongside faith in Jesus, it was necessary to be circumcised in order to be justified, in order to be counted amongst the people of God, in order to be numbered with the righteous. You had to be circumcised alongside trusting Christ. So that circumcision piece is substantial because you see what Paul is doing. Paul goes directly to the man to whom circumcision was given, Abraham. That covenant God made with him. You will be circumcised and your offspring will be circumcised. Paul goes directly to him to demonstrate that that man was saved by faith. Not by circumcision at all. Circumcision had nothing to do with Abraham standing before God. That's the point. He's going to make that even more clear in the verses that follow. But this is not just happenstance. This is not just flippantly that Paul is doing this. Oh, well, let's just go with Abraham because, you know, he was counted righteous by faith and I'll make my point. No, he's, yes, that's all true, but he's going there because circumcision is an issue. And we're going to go to the man to whom circumcision was given. And we're going to consider the fact that he, even he, is justified before God by faith. And anything that circumcision means comes well after. That reality has already happened. And we'll consider that more in the verses to come. In order to be spiritual children of Abraham and blessed by God like him, you don't need to keep the law and you don't need to be circumcised. You need to be of faith, just like Abraham was. It's the argument. It's clear. It's compelling. So now we're going to go to the second piece of our sermon, the second point, in which we're going to take a little bit of time and consider Abraham's life. Not everything that could be said, certainly, but just in a broad sense. Because if Paul is pointing to this man in the ways that he is, he's holding Abraham up as a model in one sense of how one comes to be reconciled to God, how a person is justified before God. It matters that we would consider him. And I'm going to go ahead and lay my cards out on the table before we go any further. It is not as though, as you consider Abraham's life, so if you wanted to do this this afternoon or this week, this would be a good thing for you to do. At the tail end of Genesis chapter 11 is where Abraham comes, Abram at the time, comes on the scene. We're told about his father, his ancestors. And then really beginning in chapter 12 is where the, the meat of the story of Abram, Abraham, begins. And then it really goes through chapter 25 of Genesis when he dies and he's buried. But read that section of Scripture for yourself, even this afternoon or this week sometime. It's a good, good story. But you'll get to see for yourself these things that I'm going to be pointing out for us. And it's not as though when you read the account of Scripture with respect to the life of Abraham, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that this man was not a pillar of unwavering righteousness. He rather was a sinner and a struggler like you and like me. And more pointedly, perhaps, Abraham's story is a story of grace and is a story of faith, just like ours. So it matters that we would look at that. 
I always love to take the opportunity to kind of detox all of us from the kind of moralizing stuff that we tend to do with the Old Testament. I'm not saying here at this church that we do that. But many of us have grown up, if we've grown up in the church, many of the sermons that we would have heard probably from the Old Testament were moralized, moralizing sermons. Where it's like, okay, well, here are the things that we can learn from Abraham or David or whoever. We hold them up. You know, as, as people to emulate. Not that that's entirely illegitimate, but that's not at all the reason they're in the Bible. And so I love to take the opportunities that we are given like this as we make our way through Scripture to continue to kind of wrestle a little bit of that out of our hands and help us to think about the reason these individuals, these people, are in Scripture. And so let's consider Abraham. He did not grow up knowing, fearing, and seeking God. He was not raised in a Christian home, right? He was a pagan. He was an idolater, a pagan worshiper of other gods. He grew up in Ur of the Chaldeans worshiping other gods with his family. We read that in Joshua 24. Sometimes that's a shocking revelation for people. That, oh, like Abraham was not always a, a God seeker. He was not always a, a God fearer, a fearer of the Lord. No, he was not. Far from it. God called Abram out of paganism. God rescued Abram from false worship, from worship of false gods. And God chose him and blessed him. That's grace. Extravagant, sovereign grace. It's just like the grace God has shown you if you sit here today in Christ. God then, not only did he choose Abram purely of grace, because it could not have been because of anything Abram was doing, it could not have been even because God just foresaw, well, this is a good man. No. God in grace and love chose him and then made great promises to him. Great promises to him. What did he promise? He promised Abram a people. He promised him offspring. He promised him land. He promised him blessing. Right? That all the nations, as we've already considered, would be blessed through him. That his offspring would be as massive in scope as the number of the stars. It's astonishing. Great promises that he has made. He promised to be his God. And then Abraham had faith in God. He believed God. Genesis chapter 15. We read that already today. He believed God. That God would in fact deliver on those promises. And through faith, God counted Abram righteous. Counted Abraham righteous. That's grace through faith. Sounds similar. By grace through faith, we have been saved. Just like Abraham. Abraham didn't earn God's blessing. That's clear. I've already alluded to this in a way. But let's just be crystal clear about that. He didn't deserve the blessings that God promised him. He did not earn God's favor. He certainly did not earn righteousness. He did not work really hard and conform and reform his life in some way that then caused God to look at him and say, righteous. It's not at all what happened. In fact, it was the opposite. It was that God freely chose him, counted him righteous, and then began to work in his life. So Abraham failed repeatedly as you read the account of his life. Just think of a couple of the ways, two or three of the ways that that's true. Abraham demonstrated himself to be rather cowardly on multiple occasions. He was very much consumed with his own well-being. He was also prone to, to lie and manipulate, deceive. He did that on multiple occasions. And in particular, kind of putting these two things together, not once, but twice, at two different points, with years in between. It's kind of a lesson on progressive sanctification, perhaps. With years in between, he put, Abraham did, he put his own wife, Sarah, in great jeopardy. He put her in a position where she was going to be and was sexually exploited. And he did that in order to protect himself. He did that twice. So as we think about Abraham, and we think about the fact that he could be a coward. Well, how about you? How about me? We all are cowardly in our own ways. 
We thought about the fact that he was a liar and a deceiver and a manipulator. How about you? Guilty as charged. I trust you feel the same. Men in the room, husbands in the room. Abraham was far from a model husband. And you might be tempted to sit there and think, well, I've never done that to my wife. But you have failed your wife in so many ways as I have failed mine, just like Abraham failed Sarah. He was a man altogether like us. His faith even. This is what's shocking, right? So Paul himself, in verse 9 of our text today, he refers to Abraham as the man of faith. The man of faith. Well, let's talk about Abraham's faith. He did believe God and it was counted to him as righteousness in Genesis 15. That is true. And then as his life unfolds from there, we trust that he is believing God in terms of wholesale. The trajectory of his life is one of trusting God. That's not up for debate. But his faith certainly faltered at times. The man of faith, his faith faltered at times. His faith was weak at times. And possibly, when you're reading the story, you look at it and you're like, where, where is his faith in God at all? This man of faith, where is his faith? In particular, just think about the fact, the way that he and Sarah took matters into their own hands to have a son, to have a child. God had promised Abraham and Sarah, at, Abraham's like 75, so that would make Sarah like 65 because she's about 10 years younger. He promises then, I'm going to give you a child. Well, years pass. And there's no kid. There's no child yet. And so Abraham and Sarah have a brilliant idea. We're going to just kind of take the wheel and commandeer this thing and make this happen. So Sarah says, hey, why don't you have relations with my servant, Hagar, and we'll have a, a child that way. So Abraham says, great idea, honey. Let's do that. And so that's what happens. They have a child together, Ishmael. And then, after they have sort of circumvented God's plan in that way, taken it into their own hands, Abraham, like so many of us, what does he do in pleading with God? He pleads with God. God, please, bless Ishmael. Bless him. I've gone and done this on my own. And Sarah and I thought it was a great idea. Not sure how you feel about it, but why don't you please bless Ishmael? Sounds familiar. But then also, think about him. Where is his faith? When God comes to him again, now he's 99 years old. Ishmael is a boy. Sarah is 90. God comes to him again and promises him that you will have a son through Sarah. You will have a son through Sarah. And Abraham laughs to himself. That's what the text says. He laughed to himself. Could this ever be? That a man my age would father a child and that a woman of... Sarah's age 90 with father child. It's just like Sarah's response a chapter later, right? When she hears this promise again, like the way of women has ceased with me. Could this really happen? Point to be made here, friends, is that Abraham, the man of faith, lacked faith sometimes. Abraham, the man of faith, doubted sometimes. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? I'm asking a question that I know the answer to because the answer to that is yes. As fallen, sinful human beings, we have had plenty of our own faithless moments where it is just so hard to believe the promises of God. It's so hard to feel that they are true. We might even say, yeah, I know, I know that cognitively, but I don't feel that way. I know that in my mind, but I can... It does not feel real to me. It's, it, it feels so hard to believe for me that God will actually deliver on these promises. Will He really do everything that He has promised? Take heart in the fact that you are not different than Abraham, the man of faith. In spite of all of this, and this is where the point of Abraham is not Abraham. The point of Abraham is to point to God. The point of Abraham is to point to the utter faithfulness of God. Because in spite of everything that we just considered, in spite of all of Abraham's failings and shortcomings, in spite of all of his doubting, God never turned his back on Abraham. God was always faithful. God never flipped the script. He never backed out of any of the promises that he had ever made. 
God remained utterly faithful and true, even when Abraham was faithless. And God worked in Abraham's life. So I, I hope that you're beginning to see how Abraham's story is just like ours. God worked in his life as Abraham had trusted him imperfectly, but really had trusted him. He did work in Abraham's life so that we just considered all these things, the ways that he put his wife in jeopardy twice, how he was a coward sometimes, and how he lied sometimes, and he lacked faith sometimes. But by the time that he would climb Mount Moriah in Genesis chapter 22, and he would be called upon by God to sacrifice the son that God had given him, the son that he had waited decades for, Isaac. You're familiar with the story, many of you. It's clear that his faith had grown. His faith had grown to the point where he could say, yes, I am ready to kill my own son because this is what you have said to do, God, and I trust you. I'm confident, and I think Abraham would be the first to say it, that he did not work that kind of faith in himself. That God did that as Abraham trusted him, albeit imperfectly. It's a story just like yours and mine. It's a story of God's sovereign grace. It's a story of righteousness through faith. It's a story of struggle and sin. And it's a story of the utter faithfulness of God to deliver on His promises through it all. That's the point of Abraham. The father, in one sense, of God's people. We all as spiritual children of God, come after Him and are spiritual children of Abraham. His story, very much like Adam, we were represented there. I think in one sense, we are represented by Abraham. His story is like our story. We uphold Abraham as a great man. He is, after all, I mean, how often does God Himself introduce Himself or refer to Himself in Scripture as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That's a pretty big deal. He certainly doesn't introduce himself in any capacity as the God of Justin Perdue. Uh, so Abraham is a big deal in that sense. And we sing, as we talked about, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. That's a good song. And of course, a lot of the ways that we uphold him are entirely legitimate. I mean, to uphold the things that we were just considering, even his faith in God is legitimate. But Abraham would be the first to confess that he himself is a great sinner in need of a great Savior. He would be the first to confess that he is in desperate need of the mercy of God. And this is true not only of Abraham, but any other figure in the Old Testament. David, take your pick. Abraham would be the first to say that God saved him by his grace and that he didn't deserve it at all. And that he certainly didn't earn it. See, God has always saved the same way. Because people have always been the same. So when we think about the old covenant and the new, it's good for us to remember that. That God has always saved this way. He has saved by his grace, through faith, in his promises. Abraham rejoiced. What does Jesus say? Abraham, when he's talking to Jesus, talking to the Jews of his day, he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And now it's here. Abraham believes the promises of God, even as it pertains to the promised one, though he doesn't know him yet. This is how people have always been reconciled to God. And so that brings us now to just the third piece of our sermon and our time together today, uh, where I want to just offer a couple of closing meditations for us to, to ponder. So the first meditation is this. So this is kind of part three, subpoint A. I don't know. To seek righteousness before God by our works robs God of glory. To seek righteousness before God by our works robs God of glory. I'm not talking about doing good works. That's, you, if you're hearing me say, us doing good works robs God of glory, that's not what I'm saying. I am saying you... Seeking, or me, seeking righteousness before God by our works robs God of glory. There's an important difference there. So when we do this, when we 
seek righteousness. So I am, I am working in order to contribute to my standing before God, or I am working to secure my standing before God, or I am working completely just because God's going to think I'm a swell guy and thus say welcome to heaven. When we think in these ways, we are thinking and we are acting as though we can appease the wrath of an eternal almighty God through what we do. That's just absolutely absurd on its face. That we think that what we do, imperfect as those deeds are, could ever appease the wrath of the holy, eternal, living God. That's insane. And it makes God small. So the reason that we're thinking about robbing God of glory here is all of these things tell lies about God. So when we act as though we could work for our righteousness, we tell lies about Him. We make Him seem small, even in His wrath and holiness, as though my good works could appease that, as though my good works somehow could meet God's standard of perfect holiness. But when we think this way, we're doing other things as well. We're thinking, when we pursue and seek righteousness before God by our works, we are thinking and acting as though we can deserve or earn God's grace, God's favor through what we do. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, you're like, well, brother, isn't grace by definition unearned? Yes, that's one thing to consider. But to think that we could even earn God's favor through what we do, again, is misguided. When we think and pursue and seek righteousness before God by our works, we think and act as though God is not merciful. Hear me out on this. We're telling lies about God and we act as though He's not merciful when we think we've got to work, when we think that we can work even to secure our standing before Him. We act as though He is simply some kind of angry judge who must be pacified, not the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We act like He's not that kind of God when we think that we can just do stuff and earn His favor. We could do stuff like He's this angry judge who's just waiting to sentence us. But if we do enough and work enough, maybe, maybe that won't happen. It underestimates and short-sells His mercy and grace in a way that robs Him of the glory He deserves. When we seek righteousness before God by our works, it robs Him of His glory in that it communicates that God is not faithful to keep His promises. In particular, He is not faithful to keep the promise of salvation through His Son. So when we think, oh my gosh, like I've got to do this stuff in order to add something. If I've got to do this stuff to contribute something. I've got to do this stuff to secure something. It is us making the faithfulness of God quite small. It's doubting that He is actually true and that He will deliver on the promise that He has made that He will save us by belief in His Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish and have eternal life. We act as though that's not true and that God will somehow renege on that promise when we think that we've got to do it ourselves in any measure. When we seek righteousness before God by our works, we think and we act as though Christ's work and Christ's benefits are somehow insufficient. Yeah, Jesus, he did a lot even. Like he really, he made it possible for me to be saved and he accomplished a lot on my behalf. But when we think that we have to do something on top of what Christ did, not only is that an insult to the Lord Jesus, it robs God of honor and glory and praise because God is the one who saves. Jesus is the one who accomplishes salvation. And we add nothing to it. We contribute nothing to our standing before God. Christ has paid it all. And Christ has accomplished it all. And so whenever, friends, we think in these terms, like I've got to work somehow to contribute or secure my standing before the Lord, or I can work to somehow earn God's favor, in doing this, we're, we're essentially kind of dethroning God, taking Him from His rightful place and putting ourselves there. And what I mean by that is that we begin to determine what's necessary for salvation, not Him. 
we begin to redefine salvation in our own terms and then are foolish enough to think that we can somehow pull it off. All of this dishonors the Lord very much. And so part of glorifying and honoring God is to proclaim the unadjusted, unadulterated, unadulterated, whatever gospel that says, it's a pure gospel, that says that we are great sinners and that Christ is a great Savior and that we were unwilling and unable to do anything about our spiritual condition. But God, in grace and mercy, looked down and said, live and applied the work of His Son to us by faith. His Spirit worked in us and gave us eyes to see so that we understand who we are and who God is. And we understand that Jesus paid all of our penalty. And that Jesus accomplished all of our righteousness. And that simply by turning from our own righteousness and our own sin and trusting in the merits of Jesus, we are justified. That's the gospel. That honors God. It gives Him glory from beginning to end. He is the author of salvation and He is the one who will complete it. That's the good news and that's the God-glorifying gospel. And so let's not ever make the mistake of thinking wrongly about our good works as though they earn something in terms of our standing before God. Let's not think of our good works as though they contribute something to our salvation because they don't. Whether that's circumcision or any other work of the law, Jesus has done that. And God gets glory through His gospel. The second, the second meditation, friends, that I want to leave us with is this. It is... Through faith in Jesus that we are declared righteous and credited with the righteousness of Jesus. Okay, we've thought about that a lot. We are not, let's just be clear about what it is not, we are not made inherently righteous ourselves. So we thought about this a little bit a few weeks ago, but I want to unpack it a little bit. It is through faith in Jesus that we are declared righteous and credited with the righteousness of Jesus, but we are not made inherently righteous. So this is critical. For us to understand. Do our lives, upon conversion, when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when God works by sovereign grace, just like He did in Abraham's life, like He's done in many of the lives I'm looking at right now, when that happens, do our lives begin to change? Absolutely, they do. The transformed life is real. And if there is no transformation, as we, we talk about this regularly, if there is no transformation, there is great cause for concern. If your life just looks just like it did before you came to know Christ and now you're saying you know Him and there's zero transformation, we've got to have a conversation. So that's real. The transformed life is real. But then let's be real alongside that for just a moment. The holiest and most righteous people alive from our perspective do not have full and continual joy in God. The holiest and most righteous people alive have struggles. The holiest and most righteous people alive sin still. Scripture makes this very clear. So again, we want to look to figures in Scripture to learn things. We can learn this. From the apostles to the prophets to David to Job. Sinners. Every last one of them. Just like you and me. If perfection or entire sanctification were required in this life, in order to be reconciled to God, no one would be saved. None. As long as we live in this flesh, and by flesh I, I mean these bodies, right? As long as we live in this flesh, sin will be in us. Paul talks about this in much detail in the middle of his letter to the Romans. And this is why, as we are regularly saying here at CBC, we are constantly looking outside ourselves to save what's wrong in us. We look outside of us to save what's wrong in us. We are constantly looking to Christ and trusting in Him. He provides our righteousness and our faults and our failings and our sin. It's not charged to our account because He took it all. He has paid for every favor. He has paid for every sin. And that's done. Our sin, as believers, and this is not to minimize sin at all. Our sin as believers is real. Our sin as believers is often very ugly. Horrific. I mean, 
Think about your week. I'm thinking about mine. I'm thinking about my week in the ways that the sin in my life has been wicked and horrible to people I love and care about and before the Lord ultimately. I trust as you assess yourself honestly, you know the same thing is true. There are, there are things going on in our lives in this church that are horrible. Why? It's because sin is in us. So our sin is serious and it's real and it's ugly and it destroys things. It leads to paths of ruin and wreckage. And it's only because this is true of us. And, and we, I trust everybody that I'm thinking of in my own mind and as I think about myself and as I'm looking at you, it's not because you're not a Christian that you're sinning. You mean to follow Christ. You mean to live a life that honors the Lord. And that's why it's only in fleeing to Christ that we can ever know that we're safe. It's only in fleeing to Christ that we can have peace within. Because when you are confronted with the absolute horror of your own sinfulness, what are you going to do with that? Where do you take it other than to Christ for peace, for your troubled conscience? God looks at us and He doesn't count our sins as horrible as they are. He does not count them against us. For those of us who are in Christ, that is remarkable. That's worth meditating on for the rest of today and the rest of your life. He looks at us and He says, God does, essentially. He looks at us and He says, you, child, you trust my son. Although your sins are many and although they are serious, you are forgiven. My son, my son has paid for them all. He has handled that. He has accomplished perfect righteousness. And so, there's nothing for you to worry about when it comes to your standing before me. You are justified now in him. And there's a day coming. There's a day coming when I'm going to wipe every tear from your eye. And there's a day coming when sin will be no more. And it will be as natural to you as breathing that you would love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It will be as natural to you as breathing that you will obey and keep my commandments perfectly. It's coming. That's good news. That's good news. That's gospel news. You see, God is in the business of justifying the ungodly. He doesn't say, be godly, and then I'll save you. He does not wait for you to make yourself savable and then save you. You could never do that anyway. I could never do that anyway. But that's not how God works. And this matters for us for so many reasons, friends. But it matters for those in the room who know yourself. We know ourselves to be strugglers. You feel it. You feel it intensely. You feel it viscerally. I'm struggling hard with sin. I don't want to sin. And I'm struggling hard with sin. You're heartbroken, perhaps, over the ways that you're struggling and sinning against God. Perhaps you are coming to terms with the wickedness that you see in yourself, and it is terrifying. And you think, my God, how could I be a Christian? How could I be the Lord's if I see this in me? It's where the gospel matters. The only way to deal with those real wrestlings is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Flee to Jesus and live. So if you find yourself here this morning and you are like, brother, that, that is me. I am struggling. I don't want to sin. I'm sinning. I'm horrified at the things that I'm doing and thinking and saying. My encouragement to you is keep striving for holiness. My encouragement to you certainly is flee to Christ. And then my encouragement to you certainly also is this. Take heart because it is not possible for you to become so righteous in this life that you will no longer struggle against sin. The fact that you are struggling with sin does not mean for one moment that you do not belong to God. In fact, the struggle is evidence of life in you. The fact that you are fighting and striving for holiness, that doesn't come from you. 
God has worked that in you. You will always have spots and you will always have blemishes. And friends, many of us, I would say all of us, we will walk with a limp in this life as we follow the Lord Jesus. As we walk together, there will be a limp in our cadence. It's good if you're struggling today and you're feeling that. It's good that you would see and feel your sin. That's an essential part of sanctification. I know I've said that and we've said that before, but don't overlook that piece. The fact that you see your sin and you're grieved over your sin and you're more aware of your sin, that's evidence of growth. That's how sanctification often begins, with an increased sense of self-awareness in the ways that I sin. And now, ultimately now, run to Christ who saves sinners. When you do that, when you run to Him and you cast yourself headlong upon the mercy of Christ, you honor God. You glorify God because you have believed His promise and you're not attempting to justify yourself. You know that you never could and that Christ is your only hope that honors the Lord. And if... Lastly, if you're sitting here this morning and you're a fellow struggler, I say it that way on purpose. If you're a fellow struggler, if you trust Christ, you are righteous in the sight of God. You are righteous. That's not me saying that. That is God Almighty saying that. Your sin that remains is pardoned for Jesus' sake. Jesus, who is your righteousness. Jesus, who took your sin upon Himself. Your sin that remains in you is pardoned for Jesus' sake, the great friend of sinners. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we don't take it for granted that we can even call you Father. We can call you Father because of what you have done for us in your Son. And we thank you for Him. We thank you that rather than only being a judge of sinners, He is the friend of sinners. He is the Savior of sinners. We rejoice in the fact that you are the kind of God who gets glory when sinners trust your promises. So we pray that we would all the more today. We pray that we would trust you completely. We pray that we would trust your son for his perfect life in our place and also for his atoning death that is paid for our sins. And that we would trust in his resurrection that we too will be raised to life with you one day. Continue to work in us by your spirit as you worked in Abraham to grow our faith and make us more like your son. And we pray for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.